are in uh, Romans chapter 6. I'm going to make an attempt at verses 12 through 14 this morning. Three whole verses. So we're flying. Um, <clears throat> and again, I've got sinus problems. Apparently that's going to be my lifelong uh, thorn in the flesh, so we will do the best we can do with that. <laughs> um, it's a good lesson this morning, though. Uh, verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So we come to a new section, or at least a new subsection, with regards to the argument that Paul is unfolding here in this sixth chapter. Uh, we must not lose sight of the fact that Paul is still here dealing with that false charge that has been brought against his teaching, which he mentions to us in verse 1, that shall we continue in sin that grace may abound. That's all he's been talking about is refuting that statement, the entirety of this chap chapter. So Paul is still here refuting that charge and showing us how in, how in reality, if we truly understand his teaching, then the result is going to be the exact opposite of what his critics are saying. And so thus far, he has been showing us in a purely doctrinal manner how this works through the first 11 verses. But now he's going to show us how this looks in a practical manner. So how do we know that we have moved from the doctrinal to the practical? Well, there is this one word that Paul is so fond of using in his teaching. That one word is what? Therefore, okay? Remember, when we see that word, we are beholden to find out what it is there for. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Because, I've said all, because I have said all of this, what I've said through the first 11 uh, verses, because all of this is true uh, that I've been telling you, he says, therefore, let not sin reign in your mortal body. What is he introducing us to by this word, therefore? Remember, we've said that everything Paul has said up to this point has been doctrinal. Nothing about our experience, nothing for us to put into practice, just doctrine, just the facts, clear and unadulterated facts. So this word, therefore, tells us, first of all, that the doctrine always has to be applied. Doctrine is never an end unto itself. The Christian world is mainly divided into two main groups, or at least generally anyway. There are exceptions, but the first and larger group are those that have no interest in doctrine at all. They prove their state and that they have no, des no desire to study the Word of God apart from their Sunday morning worship service. That's all they ever see of it. They're only interested in the practical matters. The second group, although smaller, is equally in error and that they are concerned with doctrine only, with only a passing interest in the practical matters. Both, of course, are wrong. 
again, in a general sense. But what is being put forth to us by this word, therefore, is that however much we may have been interested in the argument and the doctrine that Paul is putting forth here, this doctrine will be of no benefit, no value, unless we put it into practice. You can't have one without the other, as we've said on occasion. Jesus himself says in John chapter 13 and verse 17, he says, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So you can know all of it. But the blessing doesn't come until you what? Do them. Come judgment day, it will be of no benefit to us to say that we understand all doctrine. For as Paul told the Corinthians in chapter 13 of uh, that first book, first letter, if we had all knowledge, if that knowledge has, had no, has not had a vital impact on our whole life, on our whole conduct, on our whole behavior, it will be of no benefit to us. He says, let not sin reign therefore in your mortal, mortal body. That is the application of the knowledge that I have given you, says Paul. I have given you all this doctrine. But beware of being content in that alone. Those that delight in the doctrine without allowing it to touch their practice and their conduct are the same ones that are playing into the hands of the enemy that Paul is refuting here. Those that say that it does not matter much at all how we live as long as we are Christians and under grace. This body of ours, of flesh and, uh, of flesh and blood and bone. That's what he's talking about, not our souls. So Paul is teaching here that while we are here in this mortal body, sin is going to remain in this body. His whole appeal to us is that we are to not let it reign and rule over our mortal body. We ourselves have already died to sin. We are under the reign and rule of grace. So Paul does not say, let not sin reign in you. It can't. It's not possible for it to reign in you. You have already died to sin. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Consider yourselves dead indeed to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ our Lord. So principle one is that sin still remains in our bodies, still remains in our being. Our souls, our, our being and our souls have already finished with it, or done with it, but the body, not so much. This body which sin inhabits and tries to use still remains. Secondly, sin not only remains in our body, but if it is left unchecked, it will take over. It will dominate our bodies. Again, to clarify, this sin is not in me, it is in my body. I'm already dead to sin. My body is not dead to sin. The sin in my body desires to dominate my life, and that by, and that by dominating my body. How does it do such a thing? He says, by making you obey its passions. That is what sin does. It turns the natural instincts of the body into passions or lusts. Our instincts are given, are God-given, and they're good. There's nothing sinful in them. Sin comes when the passions assume dominance. We must restrain them. We must resist. We must fight their domineering in our bodies. 
Sin has no power over me. It cannot ever dominate me again. But if I'm not very careful, it can dominate my body. That is the picture of backsliding. Y'all have heard that phrase. That used to be a common phrase back in the day. Sin gaining control of the body of a Christian, making him obey its passions. Paul here warns us and commands us not to allow such a thing to happen. Paul describes this in himself in 1 Corinthians 9.27. He says, But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. So he says he disciplines his body because that is the place where the sin still resides. He disciplines his body, not himself, but his body, which is our key to understanding the whole doctrine of sanctification. Sin cannot harm our soul. All it can do is trouble us in our bodies. We're dead indeed to sin. We are alive indeed to God, but sin in our bodies will go on troubling us. But do not, he says, do not let it take control. Do not let it reign over your mortal body. What does this tell us? It tells us, firstly, that this therefore that we see here introduces us to the doctrine of sanctification and holiness. It tells us that this doctrine of sanctification is something that you and I have to put into practice. Do not allow sin to reign in your mortal body. You have a choice, okay? When we were in Adam, we were slaves to sin. We had no choice. Now in Christ, we have a choice. Make the choice to not allow sin to reign in your mortal body. Justification is a gift. Sanctification, on the other hand, is an exhortation for us to do something. Secondly, this sanctification does not come suddenly, does not come once and forever like justification does. It can't. Because sin is going to remain in our mortal body for as long as, as our body is mortal. There will come a time when we will put on immortality and it will no longer be true. But as long as we have this mortal body, sin is going to be there. So we can seek complete deliverance. We can desire complete deliverance. We can pray for complete deliverance from sin. But it's not possible. We can achieve it by degrees, as we are daily made more and more like Christ, but complete deliverance will only come when we put on our, our immortality. He says, let not sin reign in your mortal body. It's an exhortation addressed to us as Christians. It is an admonition. It's a call to action of the will. So how do we reconcile this with all that we have already said? We are under grace, no longer under the law. Our sanctification is guaranteed and that God is going to do it. Well, quite simply, it lies in one fact that we must always keep in the forefront of our minds. That fact being that God not only decrees the ends, so we all understand that, right? God decrees the ends, the end result of everything. God decreed that. Not only does he do that, he also decrees the means by which it happens. So he has decreed the end, which is our sanctification. 
He also decrees the means by which that sanctification happens. The means that God has decreed, which will lead to our guaranteed sanctification, is found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. He says, work out your own salvation, not your justification. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, of course, sanctification is God's work, but this is God's way of doing it. There is nothing here about just let go and let God. There's all kinds of books in the Bible bookstores about that. There's nothing here about that. It's a popular phrase today. He says, you must work this thing out. You must intentionally work it out. The New Testament method of sanctification is just this. Sanctification proceeds as we are led by the Holy Spirit who grants us the will to be holy, the will to have victory over our sin. It is God working in us that gives us that will, and it is God working in us that brings about that work of no longer letting sin reign in our mortal bodies. And he does this for his good pleasure. So if we really understand all the doctrine that Paul has been teaching us over the last year and a half that I've been doing this, okay, that we have died with Christ, that we have died indeed to to sin and death, if we really understand all that has happened to us, all that Christ has done in order for us to be placed in the position that we are in, which is in Christ, then the question first voiced in Ezekiel, Then later in the book of James, and the question raised in the minds of every true believer, he says, in light of all this, in light of all this doctrine, everything from chapter 1 all the way to now, in light of all this, how then should we live? Francis Schaeffer wrote a book about that. You should read it. How then should we live? How then should we live? Well, the answer to that is do not allow sin to reign in your mortal body. Pretty simple answer. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. Do not neglect so great a salvation purchased by, with the blood of God's own Son. Do not, live your, do not by your lifestyle cause men to blaspheme the supreme ruler of the universe and his dear Son, who have, who have given you everything pertaining to life and holiness. We live to bring honor to our Father. We live to bring honor to our Savior. We live to bring honor to his body, which is the church of which we are a member. He says, do not let sin reign in your, in your mortal body and bring dishonor on the family of God into which we have been adopt- adopted. You and I simply and only because of the position we have been placed in We now have the power to not let sin reign in our mortal body. In Christ, it says we can resist the devil and he will do what? Flee. Flee from us. We can in faith resist that roaring lion that prowls about seeking whom he may devour. For us as Christians, being in Christ 
the only way that sin can reign in our mortal, mortal bodies is if we allow it to do so. So how do we stop sin from reigning in our mortal body? We've been told not to allow it. How do we prevent it? So the therefore continues in verse 13. He says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. How do we stop sin from reigning in our mortal body? Do not give sin any opportunity to do so. As Paul says in chapter 13, he'll say, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. The great enemies of our mortal body are the world, the flesh, and the devil. Again, we have a command. This is a command. It's not a suggestion. Do not present your members to the world, the flesh, and the devil as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God. This is simply put an appeal for us as Christians to exercise our wills, to do certain things and to not do certain other things. What are our members that are being referred to here? And as we've stated before, these members are the part of our old man that are still hanging around. It's our thoughts, our appetites, our instincts, our imaginations, our, our emotions. All these old things, as I have confessed, confessed before, that are seared. These things are seared from our former sinful lives and lifestyles. So how do we work this out in practice? Well, I can only tell you how it works for me. There are two choices given here. We can present ourselves to God. We can present our thoughts, our bodies, our imaginations all to God. And I will be the first to guarantee you that if you do, if you are consistently and constantly studying your Bible, listening to sermon audio, praying, witnessing, anything that is focused on God and on God's goodness, there is a 99.999% chance guaranteed that sin will not be able to get to you at all much less reign over your members. And God will use all of that as his instruments for righteousness. Now, comes the flip side of the coin, as it were. What are we doing when we are not doing all the things that I mentioned before? What are we doing when we are not praying, when we are not studying, when we are not witnessing? What are we doing when we are not doing all of those things? Again, I can only speak for me. The moment that I stop presenting my members to God fully and completely, guess what happens next? In comes the world, the flesh, and the devil. In comes the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the boastful pride of life. So what I'm about to say is going to come across as self-righteous, but it is quite the opposite because I know my own weaknesses. But I don't watch television at all. I don't read certain things. I don't listen to hardly any music that has lyrics. Why? Because doing so presents my thoughts and my emotions and my appetites, all my members. Remember, that's what we're talking about, our members. Taking part in such things presents my members to the world, the flesh, and the devil, and the results are that the world and the flesh and the devil use my members as instruments 
of covetousness and lust and greed and anger and all sorts of unrighteousness. Now, that's how it works in me. Maybe you're stronger than I am. Remember I said that I could only speak for me. But actually God has given us an example of what is being referred to here. Y'all remember King David. Man after God's own heart. What happened to David? Well, you see, it happened like this. David was supposed to be fighting battles alongside his army, right? Fighting the enemies of God and the enemies of his people. This was his purpose. And as long as David was fulfilling his purpose, he was truly a man after God's own heart. And everything he touched or everything he set out to do was blessed and successful. But there came a time when David grew comfortable, in fact, apathetic, even to what he was supposed to be doing. So on one particular day, when his army was out doing the fighting that he himself was supposed to be doing with them, David instead was just hanging out in his palace. There was no wicked intent for him doing this just a lax and apathetic attitude towards the work that God had ordained for him to do. So what happens when God's word and work are not at the forefront of your mind? What happens when you are not living intentionally for the work of God? Well, there's a breach in the defenses, as it were, that allows the world and the flesh and the devil to make an attack. And so while David is just hanging out in his palace, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life are thrown at him all at once in the form of a very beautiful, very naked woman sunning herself on a nearby rooftop. We all know the results of that fateful day. David did not lose his position, as it were, but he lost so very much that was precious to him. By not intentionally fulfilling the work that God had for him, he unintentionally presented his members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, and the tragedy that resulted from that lasted for generations. Such is the power that sin has over our mortal body. All of us, if we were honest enough to admit it, and so Paul here gives us a command from the Lord, that the only way to avoid this, in fact, the means that God has ordained for us to perfect our sanctification, is for us not to present our members to sin, but rather present our members to God at all times and in all situations. We must not put our members at the disposal of sin. The tremendous power that is always looking for a way to get hold of them and to use them against us and against our Lord. That's what Paul means here by instruments. He means weapons. Weapons to be used in this warfare. Weapons that Satan is using in this warfare against God and all the forces of light. The world, the flesh, and the devil love nothing better than to use our members to steal and to kill and to destroy to bring dishonor to our position, to bring dishonor to our Lord and to our church body. So no, 
It's not just a movie. It's not just a book. It's not just a song. It is a tool specifically designed by the enemy to take your members captive and to use those members as instruments for unrighteousness. Unrighteousness being anything that is not godly. God is righteous. Anything that is unrighteous is opposed to God, opposed to his rule, opposed to his reign and his way of life. Unrighteousness is all that is foul, twisted, perverted, and ugly. So Paul, in essence here, is telling us that we all have powers and propensities and faculties within us, but we must never allow a single one of them in any way, shape, or form to become an instrument of sin, because that will only lead to unrighteousness. That's why Paul tells us in Ephesians to put on the whole armor of God. There will always be attacks from the world and the flesh and the devil and sin trying to get at us in one way or another. If it's not physically, he will attack your mind. If not your mind, he will attack your emotions. They don't care how they get you as long as they can get some part of you to use for their own wicked intent. Paul commands us to never allow this to happen. All that is of the world, all that is of the flesh, are specifically designed to take our minds off of God, off of his purposes, and put them somewhere else. Anywhere. Just as long as it gets us away from God. It's not enough that we don't see that we do not sin with our literal physical body. We have to make sure that we're not sinning in our minds, in our imaginations, or in our emotions. Do so is to be guilty of presenting our members to sin, great enemy of both God and man. So we have our command to not present our members to sin to be used for unrighteousness. Now comes the question: How is the best way to avoid doing that? Well, it's not just the best way; it's the only way. So God, so Paul does not leave us hanging with this negative command, with no way of accomplishing what he has commanded goes on with the positive counteractivity. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. See, we still have all these very same members. We have this very same mortal body still being indwelt by the same sinful desires that once controlled us and, and enslaved us. We used to use our minds, our brains, our emotions, our ingenuity, our gifts of speech, whatever it was, we used to use these in our past as servants of sin. Paul tells us now, since we have been brought from death to life, since we are now in Christ, since we are now living under the reign and rule of grace, that we are now to use these same powers as instruments and servants unto righteousness and unto God. We did not receive new members when we were born again. We were stuck with the same ones. They're the same as they were before. The only difference is now we are free to use them in the service of God. So the exhortation is to not be content with just not allowing sin to reign in your mortal body. Rather, present yourselves to God. Dead to sin, alive to God. One can't survive without the other. God never does any job halfway. He has made us dead to sin. He has made us alive to God. If we stop at just being dead to sin, that's called morality. 
Morality cannot save. It can soothe the conscience for a time, but it can never save. It can appease the neighbors for a time, but it can never save. We're not simply called to be moral. We're called to be holy, set apart for the purposes of God. We're called to be sanctified. It says present yourselves to God, yourselves. This is something you can do and you are commanded to do. It is possible for us as Christians to put ourselves at God's disposal, to allow God to use us. We're no longer uh, we're no longer dead, dead in sin. We are alive to God. Dead men can do nothing. God uses live men for his purposes. It is Christians alone who have access into the presence of God and into his presence. We can present ourselves in all that we have and all that we are for him to use as he sees fit. We become a member of God's heavenly army, and we begin to engage in a heavenly crusade. So how do we present ourselves to God? Number one, we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. Hardest thing in the world for a red-blooded American to do. The land of the free and the home of the narcissistic. For everything for 240 years has been about us and about achieving our goals and about realizing our dreams. The first thing a Christian has to do in order to present himself to God is to give up self-interest. If any man will come after me, let him do what? Deny himself and take up his cross daily, daily, and follow me. We no longer live to ourselves, and it is because we do not live, live this out that our Christian walk is such a struggle. Self-service, self-promotion, self-realization, self-entertainment are all forms of presenting our members to sin, simply because none of these fulfill the purpose of God. We live to and for ourselves when we were dead. We we're alive from the dead now, and we are commanded to now live not for ourselves, but for God. To present ourselves to God, to present our members, our thoughts, our emotions, all our powers to God, to be used in his war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. To be positively and actively engaged, not just on Sunday morning, but daily engaged in God's crusade of righteousness and truth. This is the means that God has ordained for our sanctification, to be daily involved in the battle that he is involved in. The more we present our members to God, the less we will have time to present our members to sin. It's pretty easy to figure that out, right? And in equal proportion is our sanctification increased. The church including this church, is not a clinic, is not a hospital for the sick and the lame. I know that that's been popular for 100 years now, the church being a hospital. This church is not a hospital, okay? This church is a barracks for an army. We're not here to see a doctor. We are here to receive our orders from our general. His orders are not to let sin reign in your mortal body. Do not present your members to sin. Present yourselves to God. We are soldiers 
in the mightiest army to ever or that will ever exist. We're involved in a mighty campaign, and it is through our warfare that lost men come to Christ and the enemy is put to flight. Do not fraternize with the enemy that is on your screens or in your books or hanging out on every corner looking for a way to get to you. That is the enemy. This is the New Testament way of teaching holiness and sanctification. There's no sentimentality. There is no subjectivity, as is so popular today. The New Testament says we are to fight the good fight, to play the man, to put on the whole armor of God, to stand in that evil day, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Those are all battle cries. There is no hospital. This is no hospital. This is a barracks. And our victory is already assured. If you are spiritually sick and lame, if I am spiritually sick and lame, it's because we have presented our members to sin willfully. The only solution is to quit hanging out in your palace and get back to fighting the war. This is our position in Christ, united with him in this battle. As Christians, we do not yield our members to the enemy to be used in the war against our Savior. We rather yield our members as instruments of righteousness to God. Trying to do both just leads to confusion and defeatism. Verse 14, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. So we've finished with the prescriptive, as we've talked about in past lessons. The Bible contains both prescriptive, uh, prescriptive, meaning it tells us what we are to do, and descriptive, meaning that it tells us what we are. So Paul has given us the prescriptive in, in 12 and 13, told us what to do, now he's going to remind us of who we are and what we are in as much as this doctrine of holiness and sanctification is concerned. This is really what he's been doing already in the first 11 verses, telling us that we are free from sin, free from its dominion, its domain, and its power. We are dead indeed to sin. We are alive to God. This means we have a new life. We have new life in us. Christ is in us. The Holy Spirit is in us. And because of that, we now have power that we never had before to resist sin. And we are commanded or prescribed to do just that, to resist that sin. The entire New Testament calls on us to take action. Again, this is not a hospital, it's a barracks. And we have been given the ability to do what has been commanded of us. And since we have been given this ability, it quite logically and consistently stands to reason that this is exactly what we are supposed to do. It's not going to be done for us. We are to fight the good fight of faith. And since we have been born again of the Spirit of God, we now have the ability to do just that. So the New Testament method of sanctification is to remind us of that. And having reminded us of that, the command given is now go and do it. So in verses 12 and 13... We have our marching orders, as it were, our commands from the general. 
And having received these marching orders, Paul gives this little word for, meaning as an encouragement for us to do what Paul has already been commanding us to do. Why must I have nothing to do with sin? Why must I not, I not allow sin to reign in my body? Because sin will not have dominion over us. We obey the commands of our general because of what he has done for us. He has freed us from every fear of sin ever again having the dominion over us. This will not happen to us because it, not, it will not be allowed to happen. Sin will never again be allowed to have dominion over you. This is the whole real object and purpose of salvation. God's reason for sending his son to the cross and to rise again was to destroy the works of the devil, to deliver us utterly and completely from sin. God will never again allow sin to have dominion over us. Again, back to the reason for Paul's argument in this chapter is that it is wicked and stupid to believe that those whom God has saved and completely freed from the dominion of sin could ever continue in sin that grace may abound. And equally monstrous is the idea that the very Son of God came into this world and died on that cross and rose again in order that we might deliver once and forever from sin, but in the meantime that we should allow sin to remain in our mortal bodies or that we should in any way present our, our members as instruments for sin's use. Why? For sin will not have dominion over you. You are going to be delivered completely from it. So don't be inconsistent. Do not in any way, shape, or form allow it to have any influence at all in your mortal body. So now, how is it possible that Paul can say such a thing so confidently that sin shall never be allowed to have dominion over us? It's quite simple, really, as he continues. Since we are not under law, but under grace. Paul's grounds for this statement is our position. It is because we are not in the position of being under the law, we are in the position of being under grace. Not just the law of Moses, Moses, but law as a general principle. We are not under the law. All who are not, are, who are not Christians are still under the law. And the law demands, demands that the wages of the smallest sin is what? Death. You and I are either under the law or we are under grace. There's only two positions available. Being under the law means that you must justify yourself, pay for your own sins by your works and by your actions. Do all these things without failing in any part, and you shall live. It's the exact opposite of justification by faith alone. Paul is very concerned for the last couple of chapters to emphasize that we are no longer under the law. Because knowing this is the only way that we will ever come to understand the truth that he has just stated. That sin shall have no dominion over us. We will work all this out, Lord willing, when we get hit chapter 7. Suffice to say that the fundamental proposition is that the law, any kind of law of any kind, cannot and never could deliver us 
from the power and dominion of sin. Galatians 3.21 says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. If it had been possible for us to obtain righteousness by the law, then God would certainly have given us that law. And he would never have sent his son from heaven to earth, much less to the cross and to the grave. But law cannot do that. It is impossible. In fact, Paul says on many occasions the only thing the law does is give people a desire to break it. Titus 1.15, he says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. It's a lesson teaching on teaching and preaching morality. Everybody wants a moral family, a moral community, a moral state, a moral nation. That's sheer nonsense. So many claiming to be Christians running around, especially in the time we're living now, Shouting for people to stop doing this and stop doing that. As if that is the cure for the degeneracy of man. On what grounds are you telling them to stop doing whatever it is you're telling them to stop doing? Oh, if he would just stop drinking, if he'd stop doing drugs, if he'd stop fornicating, he'd be such a good person. How many of you have said that or heard somebody say that? Oh, in fact, he would not be a good person. To be defiled and unbelieving, nothing to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Because unbelievers are corrupt, they will pervert even that which is pure. That is how sin works. Until we died to sin, that sin had dominion over us. Like a child being told to do something, not to touch something, immediately... Their overwhelming goal is change. Now they have to do that. They have to touch that. Okay? That's the picture of a man under the law. Well, it says, Paul, I'm not telling you that sin shall not have, have dominion over you because you are under the law. In fact, if you were under the law, I could only say the opposite. That sin has overwhelming dominion over you and will have until you are born again. Thank God that is not our position that sin will not have dominion over you because you are not under the law. You are under grace. You are delivered out of the hopelessness and despair of those who are still under the law. You're not under the law. You are under grace. And the whole purpose of grace is to destroy the works of the devil in every shape or form. How so? It is grace that introduces us to a new covenant between God and ourselves. A new agreement, not like the old agreement. A new covenant made with us in the blood of Jesus Christ. Our sins and our iniquities he remembers no more. The Lamb of God has taken them away. He has removed them from us. A covenant that says, I will be your God and you will be my people. People for which I have a purpose and a will that being our sanctification. Will of the Lord Jesus Christ, Titus 2.14.
will of the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Sin cannot in any way have dominion over us, because Christ gave himself for us in order to redeem us from that sin. We are indeed dead to sin. Our sin will no longer be taken into account come judgment day. The only thing that will be taken into account is our position. Our position being in Christ. Our position being under grace. And he did this for us in order to purify us unto himself to make us daily more and more like him. To make us peculiar. Some more peculiar than others, but to make us peculiar different from the carnal world around us, zealous, not for our own promotion, not for our own fulfillment, but zealous to do the good works that he has ordained for us to do. That This is our sanctification. We have been given all things pertaining to life and godliness. We are not sick and weak. We do not need a hospital. We have within us the awesome power of God. We are soldiers in his army. It is way past time for us to cease hanging out in our palaces and join the Lord in the battle. 